can we go see the babies? That was the question we would always ask when we would go to the hospital with my mom to visit people. Can we go see the babies? You remember those days when you would go to the hospital and if you wanted to, you could stop by that maternity floor and go to that place where there were these windows and you could look at all of these babies, many of them crying, some of them sleeping right through the crying and just kind of observe these babies. Can we go see the baby? Yesterday, we beheld a baby, or at least we remembered a baby, a baby born of a virgin named Mary in humble conditions, laid in a manger, wrapped in swaddling clothes. And we look at the baby. But unlike the babies that you and I might go to the hospital and look through that glass wall and kind of observe, this baby's fate was made known from ages past. What, what this baby would go through was spelled out in Scripture. And there were aspects about this baby's life that were unique from you and me. And that uniqueness is summed up in this statement from God. When Jesus, on the occasion of his baptism in Matthew chapter 3, speaks from heaven and says, This, this, this is my beloved son whom I am well pleased. That was something distinct. This one born of a virgin was the son of God. And the things written hundreds, even thousands of years before the Son of God would come and dwell with us were spelled out in Scripture. But they would take place over about a three-year period where life would unfold for Jesus after his baptism. But it's important in a portrait. You know, a lot of times a picture is worth a thousand words. We look and you can see so much about someone in a photograph. I've had lots of people comment, even on our family, from family photographs and say, I can see a look on his face. He, he, he's, he's a ham. He, he makes people laugh. You can tell he's thoughtful. You can tell she's sweet. You can tell that she's the star of the show. And people can look, and they can just tell by a glimpse, a look at a picture, so much about a family dynamic. And in Matthew chapter 4, to which I invite you to turn today, Matthew chapter 4, we get this really consolidated portrait of Jesus as the Son of God. You see, the context is Jesus has just been baptized. And then it says in Matthew chapter 3 that he was then led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. So this is a, a moment for Jesus right after he has been declared by God from heaven, this is my Son. This is my Son. And that statement makes more sense when we look back and we understand from the Old Testament that Israel was also said to be the Son of God. This is my Son. You are my Son. God spoke to Israel. But Israel, and the story of Israel is a story of a son in rebellion. A, a son who constantly disobeyed God. A, a son who didn't trust the Father. Who in the face of suffering caved to the pressure of the pain, and doubt of the goodness and the will and the grace of God. Israel ultimately was a son who had been defeated, gone into exile, returning 
to that exile, looking for a king. And then when the king, Jesus, comes, they miss it. And in fact, the leaders of the day rejected him. You see, the story of the Bible is really, in some ways, a story of two sons, Israel and Jesus. And what we see in this passage about Jesus puts on clear display some of the distinctions between this former son or this existing son and the son of God with whom I am well pleased. And so I invite you to stand for the reading of God's word, beginning in verse 1 of chapter 4. Hear the word of the Lord. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. Then the tempter approached him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. And he answered, It is written, Man must not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple. And he said to him, If you're the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it's written, He will give his angels orders concerning you, and they will support you with their hands so that you will not strike your foot against the stone. Jesus told them, it's also written, do not test the Lord your God. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. And he said to him, I will give you all these things if you will fall down and worship me. And then Jesus told him, go away, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve only him. Then the devil left him and angels came and began to serve him. We pray with me? Father, thank you for your word this morning. And thank you that even as we look back at the beginning of the Gospel of Matthew and the Gospel of Luke, and we see these beautiful portraits of the birth of Jesus Christ, that we are called at the same time to hold this tension that this Son is distinct, and this Son is going to do something that we could never do. Not even Israel could accomplish. So keep our eyes today on Jesus. Protect our hearts this morning from thinking only of self, of beginning to place us, ourselves as the hero of the story of your word, and instead keep our eyes on Jesus. For he alone is Lord and Savior. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You can be seated. This morning, through this text, we're going to see three aspects to Jesus and and what kind of son he was. And why is this important? You might say, well, you know, how does this really apply? If you are in this room and you say, I am born again, I am a Christian, then in the same way that God speaks from heaven in this passage to Jesus and says, this is my son with whom I'm well pleased, you, Man and woman, boy or girl, now find your placement in Christ. And so therefore, only in Christ, you also hear these words, this is my son, this is my child, you might say, with whom I am well pleased. I mean, let those words wash over you. Because in the face of those words which our culture today gravitates to, we want that, that identity message. Right? Where are people hungry for that? I want to find my identity in Christ. Know this. There's an identity message there in chapter 3, verse 17. You are a child of God, and with you he is well pleased. Because you're in Christ. And therefore the righteousness of Jesus is yours. But that's not the end of the story. 
In fact, that's just the beginning of the story. To find your placement in Jesus and to be found in him and to have the Father look on you no longer with wrath or rejection, but with favor and to bring you in as a child, well, that's the beginning of a journey. The journey unfolds for the Son in this passage in a way that we wouldn't expect. Because you see, Jesus is immediately led by the Spirit into the wilderness. In the wilderness, get the picture, this is not a retreat. He's not going to a dude ranch in order to like, you know, get in touch with his, his manly side. He is going into a desolate place, difficult terrain, a place you don't want to be, where there's wild animals and where there's robbers and people that want to take advantage of you. He is in a desolate place. And there, it says explicitly, he is tempted by the devil. You see, that's reminiscent because we're comparing these two sons, right? We've got to hold the tension there. The Old Testament is about the son called Israel. And the New Testament really is this unfolding of the story of Jesus, the son of God. In the Old Testament, when Israel is led by God out of Egypt from their captivity, it says specifically in Deuteronomy that he leads them out into the wilderness to, to test them to see what was in their hearts. And so in a way, we see Jesus in the same way that Israel was led out and into the wilderness. Jesus is being led out into the wilderness to test to see what is in his heart. So what we're about to see is the core of who this man is. This is really going to be the test of his identity. Is this the Son of God? Because some people think it's just thunder. But Jesus, Jesus has heard the words of his Father, and now it's going to be put to the test. Know this about your life. Just because you have identity in Christ does not mean that you will face no temptation, that you will face no test in this life. But I have good news for you. In Christ, you can persevere through every one. And that's what we see unfold in this passage. So let's take them one at a time, these aspects of the temptation of Jesus and how it shows us this baby born and laid in a manger, the nature of this son, the son of God, and how that pertains to us today. Well, first of all, we see this, the obedient son. The obedient son. Now, that's not much of a moniker today. Most people aren't like, you know, I'm striving to be an obedient child. Even children and teenagers today, if you say, you know, you're, if, if somebody said, you know, you're an obedient son, it's like, do you not have a backbone? You know, like that you wouldn't, you know, do you, do you not have your own voice? The obedient son? And almost today, we, we make it somewhat of, a, of a, um, a weak position, if you will, to be obedient. But think on this. Jesus, in this passage, is going to have the power, we know this from other passages, to do what he's being tempted to do, which is to turn one substance into another. In this passage, it's to turn rocks into bread in order to feed himself after 40 days of not eating. And then we look and we see over in John chapter 2, he turns water into wine. We see over in Matthew chapter five, he turn, or Matthew chapter 10, he turns a bunch, uh, just a few fish and loaves into enough to feed 5,000. So we see that he can do the very thing he's being tempted to do. So what's the nature then of, of this temptation? Well, look at it again with me. It says, he answered, I mean, the tempter came and approached him and said, if you are the son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Well, the, the, the context, as I've just mentioned, is he's hungry. I mean, that may be the greatest understatement in the Bible is after not eating for 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. 
I mean, it might as well said he was starving to death. Literally, what we know about fasting and fasting for 40 days is that his body is breaking down its own tissue. It's now processing muscle because it's diminished all fat. And so it's literally eating itself. So he's starving to death. And understand that. I mean, just think about you. Your, Your spouse is making a meal. And, you know, you've come in, this happens to me, this is a pet peeve with Cole and I in our own marriage, is as I come in from work and I'm like, man, I'm hungry. Lunch was a long time ago and dinner still has another 30 to 45 minutes. And so what do I do? Start munching. And, and that, that drive sometimes, I'm, I try to make healthy eating choices like grab an apple or something like that. But sometimes, you know, there's, there's other little things that, especially during this time of year, that are out and think on it, just for a moment, if any of you are being honest with yourself, how hard is it to resist? It's only been four hours since you ate. And it's so hard in that moment to resist the temptation to eat a little something before the meal. And I always clean my plate. Forty days since his last meal. And now, at this weakened moment, Satan comes to him and says, if you're the son of God. And it's really not even that he's saying if, like Satan's like, are you or aren't you? Satan knows. Satan knows exactly who this is. And so it's almost like you might could translate it this way, and this would actually be allowed in a translation, would be since you're the son of God. In other words, he's saying prove it. Prove it, Jesus. Let's see you prove that you're the son of God. Turn this into this. Then notice what Jesus says. He answered, It is written, man must not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Now, your Bible might be like mine. It kind of has that in maybe bold text, or maybe it has it in quotations. You see, that's pointing us back to something. And your Bible might have a little letter. Mine has the letter B right there that then shoots me down to the bottom of the page. And if you look down at the bottom of the page, there's a cross-reference there. And what that means is Jesus is quoting from the Old Testament. And so our Bibles today help us get there quickly because, because the, the, the translators today want us to see how the whole Bible fits together. So they supply these little additions to your Bible. So, so look down there and you'll see that, that that's pointing us back to Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3. So Jesus is quoting from the Old Testament. And the passage that he's quoting from there is in the context of the people of God being reminded about God's provision of them of manna in the wilderness. You see, here's how it went. The the people of God got led out of, of Egypt where they had been in captivity for 400 years and then they come into the wilderness and while they're in the wilderness, they run out of food. They don't know what they're gonna eat and so every day God in his grace provides a blanket of food on the ground, this little wafer that's kind of sweet that they pick up and they say, well, what, what is it? And that's literally what manna means, is what is it? And so they're like, what is it? And so it's food every day. But here's what's so amazing, is that God, in his, in his guidance for his people with the Ten Commandments, and to observe the Sabbath and to keep it holy, he has instructed his people that they are every day to look to him for provision of food. But on the sixth day, They're supposed to go out and gather enough for the next day because there's not going to be any manna. So every week on the Sabbath, there would be no manna on the ground. People would go out to look for it and there's none there. God had provided perfectly what was needed. But see, God was testing his people 
Just like Jesus taught us to pray, give us today our daily bread. I mean, connect that back to the manna passage there. Daily bread on the ground, God providing for his people, and then asking him, asking Israel to trust him, that he will provide enough on the sixth day to be enough for what they need on the seventh day. And if they try that approach every other day to save enough for the next day, they wake up in the morning and it's, it's gross. It's got stuff growing in it and eating it. I mean, it's a terrible situation. But on the Sabbath, they wake up and it's perfectly preserved. Exactly what is needed for today. And you see, that's kind of what's going on here. Is you've got God telling them exactly what to do and then expecting them to do it. And here Jesus knows that God has not instructed him to turn stones into bread, but to wait upon him. You see, he's waiting, and we get to fast forward in this portrait right down to the end, where it says, then the angels came and served him. doesn't say exactly what they served him, but I bet they served him some food. Provided by God. And that's kind of the essence of it, right? Because the essence of the temptation that we go back to all the way in the garden is this, is Satan tempting us, think about your own life, to, to do things that he kind of says, you know, well, God's word doesn't say not to do it. I mean, think about how much of your life is a temptation into those waters where it's like, well, the Bible doesn't say not to do it. The Bible doesn't say not to watch that Netflix series. The Bible doesn't say not to go a little bit further in that way. I mean, we're not crossing the line. The Bible doesn't say anything about how I should handle my taxes in this way. And isn't that it? That's just the nature of temptation, right? That God's word didn't say. I mean, how many of you as children tried that one with your parents? Well, you didn't say not to light the Barbies here on fire. That never went well for me. The, you didn't say not to do it, excuse. And Jesus is revealing something here that I think is so important for us because he's what he's pointing us back to is this essence of what it means to be included in the Son. And for him to be the Son, and now for us to find our placement in the Son, is that we are going to be people who do what God's Word says to do. And then in those areas where God's word does not speak to it, we allow all of his word to come to bear on those moments of decision. What does his word say to do? You see, he's able to quote from Deuteronomy because he's got it memorized. Man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. I think you and I might find ourselves a little anxious about the challenge to do what the word of God says to do, because we don't know what the Word of God says. All the statistics suggest that we are today, by and large, a biblically illiterate people. We are not people who read the Bible. And so I want to let you know that I'm so thankful for Corey Barnes, our new discipleship pastor, because just in this first month that he's been here, he's really tapped into some of our core values. Our first core value at First Baptist New Orleans is we must be Scripture-fed. And so to that end, we are adding to what is provided for us as a church, a Bible reading plan 
And we realize that everybody has different demands on their time. And so there's going to be a Bible reading plan that will take you through the New Testament and the Psalms over the course of a year. And then there's going to be another Bible reading plan that takes you through the entire Bible over the course of a year so that you'll read the Bible through. And let me just say a couple of things about that. The goal is not for us to get to the end of the year and pat ourselves on the back. I read every word of the Bible. That's not the goal. It is not to become a prideful people who can boast in our reading schedules. Instead, the goal is to be a people of God who together, together are in the word so that the word can get in us and so that we can be doers of the word. I can't obey what I never heard. And that's one of those, those difficult things that when you've never been told to do something and then a penalty comes down on you for having you know, and, and uh, made an infraction against that which wasn't spoken, one of the worst feelings in the world. God has spoken. God has made clear. And so there is so much that our lives are called to be and to do that if we'll spend time in God's word, we will do. So go to the website. We're going to begin providing that. In addition, there's going to be a daily prayer podcast that Corey has helped us develop. It will be a way for you to listen and learn how to pray the word from one of the passages that we'll be reading together. And so this is going to be a a pursuit for us because every statistic shows that if you want to be a growing Christian, meaning you're serving, you you have joy in your life, there's peace, you, you find yourself resisting temptation, you're generous, all of these different markers comes down to this common denominator that you're reading the Bible for or more times a week. Four or more times a week. Said simply, that means you're reading it more days than you're not. You kind of cross the threshold so that God's word is a bigger influence in your life on a weekly basis than it's not. So make that your goal. Start off this year with a new reading plan, a way to be in the word. And let me just give you a a tip that, that is something that I started in my life and it helped me so much to stay in the word. If you miss a day, In the reading plan, you miss a day. If I miss a workout, let's just say that I'm working out and I miss three, and I say, well, I guess I'm going to have to do four workouts today. I'll be dead by the next day. And so many of us let our reading plans die because we fall behind and we say, well, I can't read Genesis and Exodus today, so I guess I just will quit reading the Bible altogether. It doesn't make any sense, but that's what many of us do, especially type A's like myself that like want it done right, well, if I can't do it right, then I'm just going to set it aside. But I just started just saying, if today is December 26th, and I'm going to open my Bible to, the, to that little reading plan that I keep right here in the back of my Bible, and whatever the reading is for d- December 26th, I trust that God in his sovereignty has me reading the Bible together with my church family in such a way that that's what I need to hear that day, and that God will speak from those passages. Even if I missed a couple of chapters here and there, I will have read a lot more of the word doing it that way than if I try to do it in a perfectionistic way. So that's just a tip to encourage you along the way as we try to read the Bible and become more biblically literate as a church. So we see the obedient son of God, first of all in this passage, combating this temptation to do things that God's word did not tell him to do and to wait on the Lord. And so be encouraged in that way. But then notice that sometimes I think we kind of have this equation that if I do what the Word of God says to do, then that always leads to a life of ease. 
that, that if I do what God's word says to do, then life will be less difficult, pain-free, if you will. Moral living equals easy living. It's kind of the way that we think. But any of you that have walked with the Lord and many of you have walked with him much longer than me know that that is not the equation. That, that's, that's not how things add up. And we look right at Jesus and we see that that is not the case. But that's the temptation of Satan right here in the second temptation where what we behold is the suffering son. The suffering son. We see the obedient son. Now we see the suffering son. It says, then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple. Get the picture. This is where every Israelite, every Jew would have gone to make sacrifice and to worship the Lord. This was the temple. Not just a temple, not just one temple of many. This was the temple of the people of God. And so Satan has him there, whether it's figurative or realistically, he's there. And he's at the pinnacle to where if you were walking up and you look, you would say, that's Jesus. He's on the pinnacle of the temple. I mean, he's way up there on God's temple. And God is not something to be taken lightly, to be treated lightly. And so you would expect that if whoever's up there on God's temple, if they're not of God, if they jump, you can expect one fate, splat. But if there's a person up on the pinnacle of the temple, and they're basically profaning God's place by standing on top of it, and then they jump off, and right before they hit the ground, all of a sudden, whoosh, they start to soar like Superman and fly around before you, then the equation should be, wait, this guy just jumped off of God's temple who has control over all life, and God just saved him. This must be God's man. This must be someone that we need to pay attention to. God's favor is upon him. And so Satan is tempting him. Man, if you'll just do this, then everybody will know that you are God's son. That'll prove it once and for all. Man, that you can jump off of buildings and his angels will construct, will, 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 or have been instructed to take care of you. And what is Satan doing here? Make note of it. He says, for it is written, he will give angels orders concerning you and they will support you on their hands so that you will not strike your foot against the stone. Do you want to see what Satan's doing next? He's quoting scripture. Let that be a wake up to you. Satan knows more scripture than you. And he knows how to use it on you in a way to tempt you and to lead you astray. You see, that's what's happening in many churches, even this morning, where there's a message being preached from God's word with Bible verses that are teaching something contrary to the message of the gospel. Something that's contrary to the message of the suffering son. And that walking in a life obedient to God could actually lead to hardship and suffering. That that might actually be God's plan in your life is that you're going to go through some difficult things and not just health and not just wealth. Satan knows that he can quote this verse because it pertains to Jesus. I mean, if it applied to anybody, it applies to the Son of God. His angels won't let you even stumble over a rock, much less jump off the temple and be destroyed. And what does Jesus do? He says, Jesus told him, it's also written, do not test the Lord your God. He's quoting here again from Deuteronomy from chapter 6, verse 16. And he's going back in the context there as if you go on with the, the quotation, he's quoting about this incident at Massa. 
And what happened at Massa in the wilderness is the people of God have been led out. They've been led through the Red Sea. It's an incredible deliverance of God. And then he gets them out to the desert and they get thirsty. And man, I'm telling you right now, when you get thirsty, there's nothing else you can think about. I mean, all you can think about is quenching your thirst. And some of you right now, I'm so sorry for having said that because right now you're like, I think I'm thirsty. And now it's all you can think about. So that's how the people of God were. They were just like consumed with their thirst. And then they took that momentary suffering, their thirst, their, oh, what are we going to do? There's no water. And they said, you know what's happening? God has led us into the wilderness to kill us. That's why he did this. That's why he led us out of Israel. That's why he did all those signs and wonders. That's why part of the Red Sea was to come out here and murder us, to put us all to death. Notice how they interpreted they're suffering. And notice that that's how we interpret suffering many times. That the moment things start to go difficult, we say, man, God, you know what? All of that kindness from God, it was all to just kind of put me in this position and just bring down his wrath. And notice how we doubt the grace and the goodness of God. How we doubt the identity. Back in chapter 3, verse 17, oh, in Christ, I'm a son. In Christ, God is well pleased with me. That's my identity. But in a moment of suffering, in a moment of difficulty, we begin to question everything. Notice Jesus and how he understands. You see, it's not made clear what happened in those 40 days. The Bible does not recount exactly what was communicated between he and God. But fasting was normally in the Old Testament, this period of seeking God, of, of, of understanding God and his will and of, of fully giving yourself to the Lord. And so I think it's safe to assume based on the other passages that we see throughout the gospel of Matthew, that what is revealed to Jesus during this time is that he's headed to the cross. See, multiple times along his way with his disciples, he says, guys, I've got to go to, I've got to go into Jerusalem. I'm going to experience, you know, injustices at the hands of the people. I'm going to die on a cross, and then I'm going to be raised on the third day. I mean, he tells them explicitly what's about to happen. And so I think that in this moment, Jesus knows that what has been made clear to him is he's headed to the cross. It's a road of suffering. But Satan is saying, no, no. Notice that Peter says, no, no. And what does Satan, and what does Jesus say to Satan? Get behind me, Satan. It's the same thing. No, God could never intend a cross for you. You're the son of God. Church, we're the children of God. Don't you believe for a moment that he doesn't intend a cross for us? In fact, Jesus was so clear. Take up your cross and follow me daily. Deny yourself. You see, the message of the world is no suffering, no suffering, no denial, no denial. Ease, ease. That's not the message of the cross. That's not what it meant to be the Son of God, and that is not what sonship means for us. Do not test the Lord your God. Jesus passes this test, revealing that He is the obedient Son, but He is also the suffering Son. And then finally, because of His obedience and because of His suffering on the cross for you and for me. This leads him to being the victorious son. But look, look how his victory is set on display. It's not on display the way that you would think. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain. Let's just imagine for a moment it's Mount Everest. And you can see it's the highest point in the whole wide world to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in their splendor. 
It's on display is everything. Everything. And he said to him, I will give you all these things if you will fall down and worship me. You see, Jesus knows where this is all headed. He knows that he will be resurrected, victorious over sin and death. He knows the scene that we get to see in Revelations chapter 5 and 7, that one day people from every nation, tribe, and tongue will bow down and worship the Lamb who was slain and the one who is seated upon the throne. But the temptation here is simply to get to the throne without the sacrifice of the Lamb. It's a shortcut. Jesus, why don't we just bypass this daily denial of self, this having to walk with sinful people and heal diseases and cast out demons and restore sight, cause people to walk, raise people from the dead. Let's skip all that and just fast forward right to the end where every nation, tribe, and tongue worship you. I'll give it to you all right now. And Jesus responds with these words. Go away, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. You see, the context of what Jesus is quoting there from Deuteronomy chapter 8 is the call to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And so what is on display? It's what's in the heart of Jesus. And then what it was in the heart of Jesus was a heart that did love the Lord his God with all of his heart all of his soul, with all of his mind, with all of his strength. And all of that love would be spent on others. All of that love for God would be spent in obedience of denial. All of that love for God would be revealed in suffering on the cross for sinful men and women, boys and girls like you and me. All of that would be revealed. You see, the identity piece. We end where we began. That's so important to us today. I can't tell you how many messages today are about identity, and that's good, and that's important. But identity is tested daily. Your identity is tested daily. And if you don't have a firm grasp, maybe even just one picture that you can return to to say, but what does it mean now to be a child of God? Then I invite you, today to make this your portrait, to return again and again to look at Jesus, this one who was born in a manger, proclaimed from heaven to be the Son of God with whom I'm well pleased to say to be a child of God means this, be obedient to what his word says to do. So you make it your aim in this life to understand and to know the word of God by reading it and taking it in and studying it in community and applying it together to be not just hearers of the word but doers of the word. You make it your aim in this life to be careful, to be mindful that you do not allow yourself to become one who loves money. That you're careful not to resist any pain, any temptation, any difficulty because you've bought into the notion that any difficulty, any denial, not having the next best thing, well, that's not God's plan. God only wants the best for me. I'm a child of the king. And that's the rhetoric, and that's how it goes. But notice that the Son of God recognized that suffering was part of this life. And then finally, you celebrate the victory that the Son of God has brought for you. You see, now you are included in those who gather around the throne. 
in worship. The victory that he had over sin and death is available to you through faith. It's available as a gift. And if you're here today and you have never experienced the riches of God, then like young Elizabeth Bazoo this morning, I invite you to turn from your brokenness and sin and to trust and follow Jesus. That's exactly what Elizabeth has done, and that's exactly what we are called to do, to have a childlike dependence in faith in God, to trust him, to believe his word. And as Jesus dispels Satan, go away Satan, we see this won't be the last temptation. I've already made mention to it. This would not be the last time that he would have difficulty in this life. But he says, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. And it says, then the devil left him and angels came and began serving him. And the writer of Hebrews makes clear that still there is an angelic force that is at work that is for the Son of God and is for those who are in the Son of God. And so don't you think for a moment that you are alone because not only are the angels available to attend for us, and to care for us, but God himself in Christ Jesus has made the promise that he himself is with us always. And that fulfillment is experienced in the spirit of God so that God himself dwells within us so that you and I can walk as obedient children of God. So that you and I in the face of suffering do not doubt God's love toward us, but see it for what it is. And so that you and I can have victory over sin and death. Because there will be many, maybe even this year, that will go to sleep in Christ, as Paul says. Meaning this life seemingly has come to an end, but there is a day coming. There is a day coming when this one who was victorious over a temptation in the face of evil will be victorious once and for all over sin and death. And all will see and every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. We pray with me. Father, thank you for your word this morning. Thank you for this passage and how it, it reveals the Son of God and how it orients us rightly in just one portrait, just one passage to our identity in Christ. But Lord, I confess that in the face of difficulty, in the face of temptation, I, I do not return to those statements, this is my son with whom I'm well pleased. I don't believe that those words are, are true about me because I, I forget my identity is now hid in Christ. So Lord, as we move forward and we wrap up one year and we look to the next, we pray that we would hide more deeply in Christ, that we would be conformed more into his image, and that Christ would be seen in us, that we would walk with Christ in his word, that as we face suffering and trials of various kinds, you would prove yourself faithful again and again, and that you would captivate us so that our security is in the victory of the one who gave his life for us. If you're here today, you've never trusted Christ. There's nothing greater I could encourage you to do this morning than to trust Jesus. Give your life to him. And as we sing this song, I want to invite you, if that's you today, 
and you know that you need to trust Jesus, I invite you to come. I'll be standing right here. I would love to have a time to pray with you and to meet you personally. So let's all stand and let us worship in response to this passage and these truths from God's Word.